Our text for this morning's sermon is Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. Galatians five twenty-five through 6, 5. And as we come to the last chapter of Galatians, Paul continues to explain how uh, the gospel of grace through faith in Christ how that lives itself out in the ways that we uh, treat one another and interact with one another. Galatians 5, starting in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we look to your word now and look at this text, uh, Father, I pray that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that we would remember the result of our salvation, the remember what we're created for. Father, I pray that you would help us understand what it means to fulfill the law of Christ. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 4, yeah, you have the first two brothers that walked on the face of the earth. You have Cain and you have Abel. And right away we're told that the two of them brought an offering to God. Abel was the keeper of the sheep. Cain uh, was a farmer that uh, produced grain. And we're told that God looked favorably on Abel's offering. And this really upset Cain. And as you know, Cain kills his brother. And then as God comes to him and says, asks him what he's done, that he hears his brother's blood crying out uh, from the ground, Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? God comes to him and says, where's your brother? Am I supposed to keep my brother? That's an interesting question. And as we look at this text, we find out that the answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. If you remember last week, we looked at how we need to recognize the conflict in our life. We saw that 
in every Christian, there's the old Adam that's being put to death, that's dying. Paul reminds them that they've crucified the flesh, meaning that when a person came to Christ, what they did is they recognized this old Adam, this uh, person who's selfish and in rebellion to God, when they recognize their sin and find out there's only life in Christ, when a person trusts in Christ, Paul's saying, at that moment, what you did is you took your old self, nailed it to the cross. And he's reminding the Galatians that they did that so that they don't go nurture that old self, but rather leave it there to die this unfortunately slow death. We all wish we didn't sin anymore, but the fact is that by the power of the Spirit, we're to put to death this old man. In the first part of the book of Galatians, Paul clearly preaches the Gospel again to this church. The good news is this, that a person's not saved by keeping the law well enough, by their works, by pleasing God. That's not what saves a person, but a person is saved by Jesus Christ. His perfect life. He kept the law. And that when a person trusts in Christ by faith, they are justified and filled with the Holy Spirit. And this week we're going to look at, in light of having the Spirit of God living in this, there's this conflict, there's this putting to death, but our hope in this conflict where I want to do good, but I find sin right there with me, our answer is Christ and the Holy Spirit. You remember Paul crying out, who will save me from this body of death? Who who will save me from this conflict where I want to do good, but I continue to sin? And Paul says, Jesus Christ. And then he goes into chapter 8 of Romans 8 and talks about how the Spirit helps us. So the sermon's uh, drive is this, bear one another's burdens. And we're going to look at two points. It's real simple. Be humbled and be helpful. If you are filled with the Spirit, then bear one another's burdens. Look at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another. I just want to point out the three different times Paul talks about one another here. Envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think that's the main drive of the text is summed up in verse 2. 
For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he's deceived himself. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, it's interesting that Ephesians 5, uh, Paul is talking about being uh, filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5, verse 18. I want you to see a connection in Paul's mind. I think uh, here's how he's thinking. When someone's walking in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, he says similar things. Here's how he says it in Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then right away after this being filled with the Spirit, look at what he says. Addressing one another. One of the key implications for us being filled with the Spirit is that we're able to relate to one another differently than we could before. Paul says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the, giving, or giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what is it about being filled with the Spirit or walking in step with the Spirit that Paul immediately goes into this one anothering type language where we're supposed to care for one another or submit to one another? Both these passages show that the first and great evidence of our walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit is not some private mystical experience of our own. I don't know what you think of when you think of being filled with the Spirit, if it's this euphoria you feel as you walk around your house when you're alone, you have Christian music playing. The first thing Paul talks about is how a person relates to other people, especially in the church. It talks about our practical relationships with one another. And it's no surprise that the first fruit of the Spirit we looked at last week is love. So let's consider what it means to bear one another's burdens. First, be humbled. Not haughty and hurtful. Uh, in one sense, you could look at uh, point one here is here's how not to treat others as you walk in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The things that's consistent with Paul is that our conduct to others is always affected by one's opinion of themselves. When we walk by the Spirit, our 
opinion of ourselves is correct. We understand who we are. To walk by the Spirit is to recognize our need for the Spirit and to recognize we need to crucify the flesh. But our conduct is always affected by our opinions of ourself. The more informed you are, here's what Nelson Mandela says, the more informed you are, the less arrogant and aggressive you are. The more you know about yourself or about reality, you'll slow down a little bit. You'll be humbled. And in your understanding of who you are, you'll be able to function better in every relationship in your life. Look at what Paul says here. Let us not become conceited because here's what will happen to your relationships. Provoking one another and envying one another. John Stott writes, Now when we are conceited, our relationships with other people are bound to be poisoned. Indeed, whenever relationships with other people deteriorate, conceit is nearly always the basic cause. According to Paul, when we are conceited, we tend to do one of two things. We either provoke one another or envy one another. This word provoke is, is interesting. Uh, it's a unique, it, it's unique, uh, in the New Testament. It means to challenge somebody to a contest. The idea is this. You think so highly of yourself that you want to set up a contest where you're sure you're going to win. And you're going to be able to lord your superiority over someone else. Do not be conceited or you will provoke. This is one of the uh, opposites of walking by the Spirit is to walk into the flesh to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Romans 12.3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment about ourselves. How you think about yourself affects your relationships with everyone else. If you are conceited, you're going to be a provoker. You're going to want to get into a contest where you can lord your superiority uh, over them. I just Google searched uh, arrogant statements or the most arrogant statements. And there's all sorts of lists of arrogant statements. But I was amazed at how all of them would ruin their relationship with almost anyone in their lives. I'm just going to show you two. Uh, a neurosurgeon... Uh, at the airport talking to the parking police said this, I buy and sell people like you. So this neurosurgeon in his conceit was talking to just the mere airport police and says, I buy and sell people like you. 
I bet this guy has lots of friends that love hanging out uh, with him. Another one was a 40-year-old woman who's the daughter of the Korean Airlines, uh, the guy who owns the Korean Airlines, Cho Hung-ah. She was on a flight, on a Korean Airlines flight. She didn't like the way the peanuts were being served to her. And she forced all the stewardesses to come and bow down before her, get on their knees, and ask for forgiveness. And she demanded the pilot that they land immediately so she could kick them off the plane. And she made everyone else on the plane be delayed for hours because of this. Her arrogance affected how many, I don't know how many people were on the flight, but just everyone else on the flight were affected by her arrogance. And so Paul is clearly saying, let us not become conceited provoking one another or envying one another. So the opposite maybe of what you would think is if you're not walking by the Spirit, you're going to walk in this comparison mindset as we're going to see. You're going to want to compare yourself to others and if you make yourself less than others, then what will you do? You'll sit there and envy everyone else. If you don't know, it boils down to this. If if you're not walking by the Spirit, you don't know who you are in Christ. If you know who you are in Christ, then you lack nothing. If God's opinion of you is yours in Christ, that you're a son or daughter in Christ, then you don't need to envy the compliments of someone else or the skills of someone else because your identity is lock solid in Him. So, in order to fulfill the law of Christ, we need to be humbled. We need to walk by the Spirit, understand who we are. Look at the second point. Be helpful, not heavy. Uh, Verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now we're going to come back to verse 1 at the end of the sermon. I think this is the example Paul gives of the main point, which is verse 2 here. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you have the Spirit of God living inside you, these Galatian Christians have the Spirit of God living inside them, The first implication, the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And now, Paul talks about fulfilling the law of Christ. This isn't some secondary thing that we do in the power of the Spirit. What could be more fundamental than this? Fulfilling 
the law of Christ. Now, someone might think, bear one another's burdens. Uh, Why do I need to do that? Doesn't God do that? For people, doesn't the Bible say, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you? He will never permit the righteous to be removed? Or you remember Jesus' words, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for My yoke is easy. And my burden is light? Couldn't we say, why do I need to bear someone else's burdens? Or why do I need to have someone else bear my burdens? If God said He'll bear them, and Paul says, um, or in Jesus says that He will bear them. Uh, I could give you many more examples of that. But the answer is this. God bears our burdens through other people often. You could even say maybe most often. Now here's the thing. I cannot pay for your sins. Only Christ can can bear that burden. There's a certain burden that only God can bear for us. But there's many other burdens that God bears through other people. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, who is describing this distressed state that he's in, in 2 Corinthians 7, he's, he doesn't know how this Corinthian church, which he loves so much, which he weeps for, and he longs that they would become mature in Christ, he doesn't know how they're going to receive his letter. And here's what he writes. For even when we came into Macedonia, Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by His coming, but also by the comfort with which He was comforted by you as He told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for Me, so that I rejoice still the more. Paul's saying, I'm at this state where outside my body's tired. I'm fighting from the outside. Inside, I have this sick feeling for these new believers that might be walking away from Christ. But God comforted me by sending Titus to me. And not only that, but Titus found out that you got my previous letter and you were humbled by it and you were mourning in it. So Titus was comforted by you and I through Titus. God comforts and carries burdens through each other. What does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? If you just go back to Galatians 
Here's what Paul writes. For the whole, whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. To love our neighbor as ourself. John Stott writes, human friendship in which we bear one another's burdens is part of the purpose of God for His people. So we should not keep our burdens to ourselves, but rather seek a Christian friend who will help us bear them with us. So Paul may be saying to them, in effect, that instead of imposing the law as a burden upon others, they should rather lift their burdens and so fulfill Christ's law. Think of this. The Galatian church has these new teachers there called Judaizers. And they've come and said, you cannot just trust in Christ to be saved. You have to keep the law. You have to be good enough if you're going to be a part of the peoples of God. So these teachers come and they bring a heavy burden that they lay on the people. But the law of Christ says love one another. Bear another's burden. Isn't this what Christ did for us? It's just the opposite of what the Judaizers uh, have been doing. Paul's saying the law was didn't give you any power to kill your selfish, sinful flesh. There was no power in that. But God in Christ gives us the Spirit so that we can actually do what we were always meant to do. Fulfill the law of Christ. Be able to bear each other's burdens. I wonder if you are humble enough to allow someone else bear your burdens. I wonder if you're humble enough to bear someone else's burdens. Look at verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, can verse 3 really mean what verse 3 says? Let me read it again. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You want to talk about uh, Paul needing to learn how to speak positively to people and build each other up with, uh, build up people's self-esteem. You would never say uh, something like this. What does he mean by this? That when he is nothing, John Stott writes this, but to think of ourselves as to be, but to think of ourselves as something is to be self-deceived. As we saw earlier, conceit is vainglory, entertaining a false opinion of ourselves. The truth is, is that we are not something, we are nothing. Is this an exaggeration, Stott asked? Not when the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see ourselves as we are, 
rebels against the God who made us in His image, deserving nothing at His hand but destruction. When we realize and remember this, we shall not compare ourselves to others favorably with other, or we shall not compare ourselves favorably with other people, nor shall we decline to serve them or bear their burdens. Here's what he's saying. If you have the Spirit of God, you recognize that the only thing you are by nature is a child of wrath. That's all you are. That's all you deserve is someone that deserves the righteous judgment of God. But if you've trusted in Christ, then you realize that if you are anything, it's only by grace. Conceit makes no sense for the Christian. Paul often says uh, he's nothing. To the Corinthians, he said this. So, so neither he who plants are, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God, but it, only God who gives the growth. People were arguing, I follow Apollos, I, I follow Paul, and Paul says, we're not anything. We're nothing. 2 Corinthians uh, twelve eleven, he says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. What Paul's saying is this. I know who I am, a sinner saved by grace, that Paul would never have changed his ways apart from the grace of God. So when he says, for anyone who thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. The Old Testament is full of examples like this. Isaiah 40 in verse 13 is Isaiah's comparing people in comparison to God says this, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord or what man shows Him His counsel? With whom did He consult and who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice and taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its, all, nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. See, God's Word dethrones us. Doesn't give us much room to prop ourselves up in conceit over God. Isaiah goes on four verses later. He says this, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and His inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. What? The greatest, the princes, the kings are as nothing before God. 
For the person who thinks he is something, he will not bear the burdens of someone else. You see, if you're sitting here and you're thinking pretty highly of yourself and you're comparing yourself to other people and you see burdens out there, but you see you're working twice as hard. Maybe you see someone in the church body that's suffering, that's that's carrying a burden and you look at them and you go into comparison mode and you start to think, you know what, I'm working twice as hard. You want to know what happens at that moment? You will not bear the burden. Your conceit has brought you to the level where you will not bear another brother's burden if you think of yourself more highly than you ought. With conceit. If you're comparing yourselves to others and you find yourself envying, you won't bear someone else's burden because you'll either be too busy throwing a pity party or you'll think, surely I couldn't help anyone else or bear someone else's burden. And this is his point in verse 4. Look at what he says. But let each one test his own work. Then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Here's what he's saying. Quit looking at everyone else's work. Quit looking at how everyone else is working. Focus on yourself. Remember, you crucified the flesh when you trusted in Christ. Are you back nurturing that flesh back to life? Are you putting it to death? If you spend your time testing everyone else's work, you will not bear someone else's burden. But let each one of us, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Here's how Stott summarizes this. In other words, instead of scrutinizing our neighbor and comparing ourselves with him, we're to test our own work, for we will have to bear our own load. That is, we are responsible to God for our work. We must give an account of it to Him one day. So, the key here is, you might be thinking, well, there's a contradiction here. I thought we were supposed to bear one another's burdens, and now we're told to carry our own load. Well, burdens in uh, verse 2 is different than uh, bear his own load in verse 5. It's a different Greek word. In verse 2, what the word means is it's a load that's too heavy. There's loads we carry around that are too heavy for us. And then there's a load that God gives us that we can carry. The, the second word has to do with a small pack that everyone carried around. Their own little pack. This is just true for us as Christians. You know, if we saw a little old lady with a real heavy suitcase that can barely move it, what will almost anyone do that has a conscience? They'll come and help her bury or help her carry the load that is uh, too heavy for her. 
But what if the load isn't a heavy bag, but it is her heart that's heavy or her mind that is heavy? Are you humble enough? Do you see yourself clearly enough where you don't see yourself as too important to come and bear someone else's burden? Have you ever thought about that? Could it be that it's pride that keeps you from letting people help you or helping other people who have a burden? I think often that's exactly what it is that destroys the relationships in a church body is this when we're walking according to the flesh, people are saying, well, here's what I'm doing. What are they doing? Here's my work. Look at their work. If that's your heart, you will not bear someone else's burdens. And unfortunately, you will not fulfill the law of Christ The Spirit of God lives inside you so that you can bear one another's burdens. The law could never provide the power to do that. And then he says, for each one will have to bear his own load. I think he's will have to bear The idea here, I think, is looking forward to Judgment Day. There's a sense where at Judgment Day, when I'm standing before God with my life, at that moment, I can't look for someone else to carry the load I didn't carry. As a Christian, you'll be rewarded by how you lived your life according to your faithfulness. God will never look at your works and say, that's good enough to get into heaven. He'll only look at Christ's work and say, that's good enough to get into heaven. Only through Christ. But we're told in the Scripture we'll all give an account for our life, for our time, what we did with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Did I spend the majority of my time walking in the flesh, selfishly ignoring the burdens in other people? exalting myself over someone else, there will be a day where I'll give an account for the load God gave me to bear. And the drive, the the, the thing I'm telling you is you can do it, not because there's any power in and of yourself, but because you have the Spirit of God. If you walk in the Spirit, the fruit that will come out of your life is you'll start recognizing other people rather than just yourself. And this is just a confession. As a young pastor, and I pray that God's helping me in this area, but I still recognize so much pride, so much self-focus, is I just remember... And I still experience this, unfortunately, where I see so many people on a Sunday morning. And there's a way where I can walk through my Sunday morning and everything revolves around me. You know, hey, how's it going? Everyone's asking me how I'm doing. Am I even seeing that people are in front of me? 
with lives and burdens and uh, sin struggles? Am I even recognizing other people? Well, when I'm walking by the Spirit, I can get over myself and actually engage the people around me. There's the there's a way where I can be at home where I'm not at home. I'm all about me. I have little girls walking around me. I have a lovely wife in the home, but I can totally ignore them if I'm all about me. But by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, that Sam can begin to be put to death. And when that happens, the law of Christ is being fulfilled in us where we're loving God and loving our neighbor. Now let's go back to the example. Verse 1. So I think the principle is walk in the Spirit and don't provoke other people by being proud, but rather carry one another's burdens, bear their burdens for them. And I think here's one example he gives. Verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now it's interesting. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. That word caught means to learn something by surprise, to detect, to surprise, to catch, to be discovered. So there's a brother who's discovered in sin. Or there's a sister who's discovered in sin. You can think of this two ways. Either they get caught in something, or they themselves have been deceived because sin by its very nature is deceitful. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And so that we don't even realize maybe we're living a life of idolatry and actually our hearts being hardened and all of a sudden we're in this horrible idolatry. We're in a sense caught. So here's a person a brother who's struggling that has a burden that has is in sin. And look at what he says. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, good news, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness. So you actually have the power to do this if you're walking in the spirit. What does it mean to restore him in a spirit of gentleness? This word is also really interesting. It, it has the idea of like an old wall. When Ezra's, Ezra is talking about the wall that needs to be rebuilt, it's like the rebuilding of walls, Ezra 4.12, or the mending of nets, uh, Matthew 4.21. Uh, when the disciples got back from fishing, they were mending their nets. They were fixing them. They were restoring them to the original usefulness. Now we as Christians, when we fall into sin, our usefulness begins to become deteriorated. Your, 
your ability to have relationship with other people, sin's selfish by its very nature, you lose your usefulness to the body and you lose your closeness in your relationship with God because sin begins to separate and hurt the relationship. And so we're told that when a brother's in sin, we're to restore them back to a useful state, back uh, to a place where uh, they're able to function again as a sinner saved by grace, someone who is walking with the Spirit. Now, you might say, what does this look like? And I don't know a better example than that found um, in John 7.53 through 8.11. And I'll just read this uh, quickly. Jesus uh, does this. They went each to his own town, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught, there's there's the word, in adultery, and placing herself in the midst, They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said, um, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they already know he's not going to stone her, but they want to prove that he's going to break the Old Testament law here. So that's why they do this. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. At once, or and once more, he he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Here's a woman caught in adultery. There's hypocritical, sinful people coming and saying, What are you going to do using this woman as a prop in order to catch Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He begins to expose their conceit. You see that? Which one of you is without sin? Here's the thing to recognize here. Look how positive what Paul's saying is. It's the same as Matthew 18. Why do you do Matthew 18 where you go to the brother first? The goal is what? To gain a brother. What's Paul's point? To restore a person to usefulness. There's a sense where we can see someone in sin and we can go, oh, are you kidding me? Are you for real? This is what they're doing? Unbelievable. Man, I'm going to go tell the pastor on them. I wonder if he knows about this. This is this is bad stuff. See, what's a person doing though? 
person's forgotten who they are. They're conceited. Guess, guess who's not in position to go bear the burden? Guess who's not in position to go preach Christ to them and help pull them out of this? The person with conceit. And so we're given one example. I don't think this is the only example Paul has in mind. This is just what he states here as an example, what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. And even you might say, yeah, but what about the uh, guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who's sleeping with his wife? Paul just says, throw him out of the church. Yeah, why does he do that? So that he may be gained, so that his flesh may be destroyed, but he might come back to a relationship with God. So, if you have the Spirit of God, which you do if you're a Christian, you have an opportunity to walk in the flesh as you see your brothers and sisters, or you can walk in the Spirit of love. And you can bear one another's burdens. I can tell you something. Almost everyone you see here is bearing burdens right now. The question is, is do you even know it? Or what would it take for you to even know what those were so that you could bear one another's burdens. Because you can play this thing two ways. Well, I'm going to go to church. I hope I don't hear of any. But Or you can engage and, and really believe that, you know what? I can do this in the Spirit of Christ. I can actually fulfill the law of Christ and I can love my neighbor and I can love God. So it's my prayer that this church would be a church that seeks to bear one another's burdens. Let's pray. Father, uh, I am so thankful that You're a God who not only calls us to love our neighbor, but You supply the Spirit to us so that we can actually do it. And Father, I thank You that when we don't, when, we, when we're sinful and we're selfish, Father, I thank You that we have Christ that is a strong and perfect plea at Your right hand that we can look to Him and be restored to usefulness again. Father, I pray that You would keep us from isolating ourselves from each other. Lord, I pray You would humble us enough that we would let people know our burdens so that they can bear them with us. Lord, I pray that we would be humble enough to make the time to actually get in to the nitty-gritty and sometimes uh, the uneasy parts of bearing one another's burdens, that You would give us that love that can come from Christ alone. Lord, I thank You so much for Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen.